But let's dive in. We, we started a series last week called Do It Again. And really what it is, it's a, it's a vision series. We're talking about really just moving forward. How do we continue to move forward as a church? So last week we spent some time back in the Old Testament. We talked about the story of Joshua. And we talked about the story of when God had given them this promised land. But before they could ever receive the promised land, they had to defeat and overcome Jericho. So um, it's the largest, it's the most fortified city in the world. At that time it has walls that are so thick that you can drive chariots over them. And God says, listen, before you get the promised land, before you can have the land that I have promised you for the past 40 years, you have to defeat this city of Jericho. And so Joshua and his mighty men, his army, they're ready for a fight. They're sharpening their swords. They're doing everything that they can. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, I don't want you to fight. I just want you to march around the city seven times and then shout on the seventh day, and I'll make the walls fall down. And so we talked about this concept of sometimes... In Christianity, um, you find yourself faced with moments where you're ready for a fight, you're ready to, to defeat something, and God just says, march. And on day one, you're like, man, this is ridiculous. On day two, you're like, what are we doing? Is God really going to be faithful? Is he really going to do what he says he's going to do? And then by day six, you're probably just, you're sick of it. You're like, I am sick of marching. I have not seen a single brick move. Is, is God really going to do this? So really what I want to do, this morning is I kind of want to just tag team that story from last week. We're actually going to go back into the Old Testament. Rather than talking about Joshua, we're actually going to talk about Abraham. But I want to call us um, as a church because it's going to take us all together, not just me, not just our leadership team, not just our dream team, not just our leaders. It's going to take every single person that calls this church home to buy into this vision if we're going to move to the next phase that God is really calling us to move to. Before we do that, we all have these certain defining moments in our life. I'm sure if you just took an evaluation of your heart and your life over the past 20, 30, 40 years, however long you've been alive, you can pinpoint certain defining moments. Maybe, maybe when you got married, um, maybe when you had your first child. I mean, I, I can remember when, when we had our, our first baby. I remember what the hospital room looked like. I remember what the moment was like. I remember what t-shirt I was wearing. I remember all these moments because it was a defining moment of my life. Or maybe you can look back and maybe some of the defining moments aren't happy moments. Maybe they were a loss of a loved one, a husband that passed away, or a, a daughter that passed away. Whatever it was, we all have these defining moments in our life that make us or they break us. And that's the thing about defining moments. Oftentimes God puts us in this situation and we're faced with two options. It can define who we are as a person or it can break us down in a per, as a person and completely destroy our faith. But how many of you guys have ever seen the movie National Treasure? Anybody ever seen it? Nicholas Cage, he's probably the worst actor of our generation, but somehow that was a great movie. Um, anyway, but in National Treasure, Ben Gates, he's at this party, and he's celebrating the Declaration of Independence. And so he's at like this kind of cocktail party. It's all with these wealthy, ritzy kind of people, and they call on Ben Gates and say, hey, listen, why don't you give a toast? Why don't you say something about the Declaration of Independence? And I'm going to read it to you. Watch what he says in the movie. So he raises his wine glass, and he says, to high treason. <laughs> he says, that's what these men were committing when they signed this Declaration of Independence. Had we lost the war, which seemed likely they would have been hanged, beheaded, drawn, and quartered, and oh, my personal favorite, would have their entrails cut out and burned. 
And he says, so here's to the men who did what was considered wrong in order to do what they knew was right. Um, so, so here's what's cool about that. Many of you do not know this, but when the Declaration of Independence was signed, when we were fighting this war, like, America was on the verge of an extremely defining moment. If we would have lost the war, if we would have lost that war, if that Declaration of Independence would have not been separated, we would still be ruled by Great Britain. We'd probably still be waking up, having noontime tea at 4 p.m., and we'd all have these weird accents, and we'd still be driving on the left side of the road. (laughs) It's the truth. We wouldn't have this American freedom. But it was a defining moment. In 1776, the Declaration of Independence was signed. And what did that mean? It meant in that moment, we are an independent nation and we choose to govern ourselves now and we are no longer tied to Great Britain. We are going to become our own people. But think about that for a moment. If they had lost the war, the men leading this American revolution would have been hung They would have died. They would have been hung for high treason. They would have been put in prison. Their families probably would have been slaughtered and killed. They had everything to lose if this war was lost. It was a defining moment. It was was a defining moment. They They faced pressure that was so immense. If we lose this, we lose everything. But they knew that it was the right thing. They didn't want to be oppressed under, under Great Britain anymore. They said, we know we, we can create a better country, a country that is God-fearing, a country that loves its people, a country that can be governed by freedom. It was a defining moment. It was a defining moment for the Israelites that we talked about in, in last week. And when they're walking around the city on the sixth day, imagine if they would have stopped at day six. It was a defining moment to say, hey, let's go one more day. God said, give us seven days. If we go one more day, and if we just shout and blow these weird ram's horns, the walls will fall down. What are some defining moments in your own life, personally, that maybe where you were on the precipice of God doing something great in your life, and all of a sudden the pressure gets a hold of you, instead of it defining your life, it begins to break you down. See, there's moments in our life that have the power to break us or they have the power to define us. And I want to ask you a simple question this morning. What side of history do you want to stand on? What side of history do you want to stand on, especially within the church? Do you want to stand on the side that says, listen, we will do anything possible to reach people in this city. Is it going to cause sacrifice? Absolutely. Is it going to cause heartache? Absolutely. Is it going to cause me being vulnerable with people that I don't really know yet, but I know that I need to be? Absolutely. But which side of history as a church today, as a people, do we want to stand on? Do we want to stand on the side that says, you know what? We're in a place right now as a church where we can effectively make change in this city for the better. Or we can just become like so many other churches in America that says, you know what, we're comfortable. We've got our, we've got our 200 people. We, we're self-sustaining. We, we support ourselves. And I've got this family of people that we've connected with. And I like the people here. And I don't really want to let anybody else in. We have that choice today of where are we going to stand. See, almost three years ago, um, this church had a defining moment. The defining moment was the actual moment to say, let's start a church in Crowley, Louisiana. Um, I'll tell you this, it was the the scariest thing that my wife and I have ever done. when When you go into launching a church, there's so many unknowns. It's kind of like having a baby. 
Like when you first find out the news that you're pregnant, you're so excited. It's your first child. You're amped up. You're telling everybody. And then like when that nine-month mark comes along and you're about to give birth to that, well, not me, but she, you know, anyway. Um, and you're about to give birth to that child. All of a sudden, that excitement turns to anxiousness, right? Oh my God. Like I've, I, I am responsible for another human being, <laughs> Like, I have got to keep this person alive long enough so that they can live their own sustainable life. That excitement turns into this anxiousness. Well, see, it was the same thing when we planted this church. It was six months of preparation. It was six months of training people. It was six months of planning and all these things. And getting the word out there and letting people know. And then when the first Sunday came around, I remember just like, what if all this work was for nothing? What if, what if we did all this work and like two people show up? <laughs> what, if, what if it doesn't work? What if, what if we don't support ourselves and there's all these what ifs? It was a defining moment for us. See, it was 35 people in a living room. And the truth is, to, today we have actually grown nine times that, that 35 people. Well, there's about 220 to about 250 that attend on average, if you look at the average for the year. And there's over 300 and so people that call this church their home. See, defining moments have the ability to affect people's eternity. See, oftentimes in a defining moment, you're faced with a pressure of going, if this fails, if this goes bad, I'm going to look like an idiot. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's the same thing with the American Revolution. Man, if we lose this war... We're going to walk home with our tails in between our legs, and we're going to look like a bunch of idiots. We, we got all these people fired up for independence, and we lost. See, we started the church the same way because of that defining moment, because we took that risk. And over almost three years, I don't know if you know this, in, in three weeks we'll celebrate three years here at Crowley, but in almost those three years we've baptized almost 100 people in those three years. On top of that, We've given away almost $40,000 to missions. We've served in a major flood, and we, we mobilized over, we literally, served, in the flood last year, we served over 10,000 people. Um, yeah, awesome. We served over 10,000 people. We ran a shelter. We operated a relief center. The truth is, today we meet in dozens of living rooms all over the city, and that all started because one act of obedience. Now, I'm not saying that it's been easy. You know, we can, we can talk about it, and it can sound glamorous. And, and, man, look at the people that are coming out. Look at the people's lives that have been changed. But the truth is, it was probably one of the, the hardest decisions that we ever had to make because we're signing up to be uncomfortable. We're signing up for the unknown. We're signing up for something that says, I don't know how this is going to turn out in the end, but, God, I'm trusting you. Today, as a church, we find ourselves facing a few defining moments again. And and here's the question that I want to pose. Do we want to remain comfortable and die? (laughs) Because that's what a lot of churches do. We built it up. It's self-sustaining. Let's just be comfortable and, and they go down. But we must be a church that leans on the Holy Spirit and refuses to quit. And we will continue to continue to do it again. So what that means is we're going to keep trusting God. We're going to keep praying. We're going to keep allowing our faith to be stretched. Listen, if you've come to this church and you're looking for a change that doesn't, our church that doesn't change a whole lot and doesn't push boundaries, it's not the church for you. The truth is we're always going to evolve. We're always going to change because we're always getting people in these doors. 
You know what I, the thing that I love about this church, when you look at the average statistic, I just looked up um, yesterday the statistic for the average church in America. It goes down every single year, which is sad. But the average church in America is 65 people. 65. So to see what God has done in just a matter of three years, like that God is bringing people, I don't, I don't think we realize how blessed we really are as a church, that God has really just been gracious to us as a church to see what God has done in such a small amount of time. But throughout this series, I want to talk about the future, and I want to talk about some defining moments that we, and when I say we, I mean every single person in this building has to face. The truth is, as a church today, there's a red sea that stands in front of us. There is a Red Sea when, 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 when they got to that, when Moses got to that Red Sea and goes, oh my God, what are we going to do? The Egyptians are going to slay us. How are we going to cross this? And God just says, throw down your staff, trust me, and I'll split the waters. That's where we're at today. We find ourselves, and I'm going to get into this and, and towards the end of the message, but we find ourselves facing all kinds of different issues. And the truth is, they're good issues. They're not bad issues. They're good issues because we are growing Um, Because we do see God adding to our house every single day. But here's here's a statement that I want to make, and and I want you to do your best to remember this. If you call this your home, remember this. Because here's the danger of me preaching a sermon like this this morning. Is I can preach a sermon to fire you up and get everybody excited about the vision that God's given us as a church and, and God moving us forward. But here's the truth. God doesn't want just a bunch of hand clappers. He wants people that are actively participating. So so what that means is it's so easy to hear the vision and go, yes, that's good. Y'all go do that. (laughs) Y'all have fun. (laughs) That sounds awesome. And what God's saying is, no, I I want you to be a part of that. I want you to be a part of that. Because if you learn anything, um, we are the church. Like as Christians, God is calling us to be an active part of what he is doing here in this house. And today I want to call you to that. I want to call you to be more than just somebody that sits in a seat. I want to call you to be more than somebody that just claps and says, that's great, and that's great vision, and I I can't wait to see that happen. God's saying, no, I want you to actively be a part of this vision. So let's dive in. How can we become participants? Rather than hand clappers, how can we be people that are actively participating in the journey that God has called us to walk down as a church? Um, If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. Chapter 18, um, once again, if you don't know, we are in the YouVersion Bible app. Um, You can download that, or or many of you do know that we're on it, but it has all of the scriptures, all of the notes, all that kind of stuff, so you can follow along with that. But let me give you a little bit of context before I read it. In Genesis 18, there's actually three mysterious men who have come down to talk to God's great leader, who's Abraham. So there's three men that have come down to talk to Abraham, and they have two things that they want to mention. The first one is simply this. They want to announce to the people that Abraham's wife, Sarah, is pregnant, and she's going to have a child. Now, you may say, well, why is that significant? People get pregnant all the time. Why do three men come need to announce? Well, it it makes it significant because at the time, Abraham is 99, and his wife, Sarah, is 90. (laughs) And she's pregnant. And she's going to be 91 by the time she has a baby. Moms, how many know that is a miracle? <laughs> that is amazing. Like, if I found out my wife was pregnant at 99, I'm like, God, just take me home right now. Just, ki- <laughs> just kill me. Um, right? I've, I've, I've done this too much. 
So it's a miracle because this woman is 91 and she's pregnant, okay? And God had made a promise to Abraham. He said, I will give you a son and you will be father to many nations. So God had given him this promise 40 years ago saying, I, I will, your descendants, and Abraham is going, my descendants, God, I'm 99 years old. You told me this 40 years ago. I'm 99. In the scripture, he said, I am, I'm dead. <laughs> it doesn't work anymore, if you get my drift. It, this is not going to work. And God fulfills his promise. So these three mysterious men, they come down and say, hey, listen, Abraham and his wife are pregnant. They're going to have a son. Exciting news, right? The second they come down to do is not so exciting. Um, they come down to tell Abraham, they say, Abraham, that city, Sodom and Gomorrah, um, God's going to destroy it. He, he's going to wipe every single person out in that city. Um, because it has gotten so sinful, it has become so debaucherous, it has become people who are not God-fearing. There wasn't a single person in that city who was righteous. And so God says, you know what? I, I've had enough with this city. I've given grace. I've given mercy. I'm coming to destroy it. And so this is where we pick it up in the story. That's to give you a little bit of context before we read it, okay? So Genesis 18, uh, we'll start in verse 16. It says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? So real quick, let me explain who these mysterious men are. There's three of them. At least one of them is God. And human flesh, again. So, so we see this again. We talked about this last week. This is Christophany. This is what we see Jesus coming down bef- before he comes down and is born in a manger. This is the Old Testament. This is God, okay? And the other two, we just assume, are angels. At least one of them is God, and we know he's God because he's talking in first person. He says, I am the Lord. So it's obvious right there. Um, and then it says this. We pick it up in verse 18. It says, the one that is God says this. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what I promised him. So the men tell Abraham what God is going to do, mainly that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you notice in the verse, it says, the one that is God, one of the angels actually says to Abraham, God, should we hide what we're about to do in Sodom? Like, they're, they're kind of scared. They're nervous to tell Abraham that God's about to destroy um, the city. And they're nervous to tell him because Abraham has a nephew, and his name is Lot, who lives in Sodom. So if God destroys the city, it means that part of his family is going to be destroyed. But you later learn, out the only, you later learn in the text that the only reason that Lot is even there is because the Sodomites had actually stolen him from, they kidnapped him and brought him there. So this is why they're saying, should, should we tell Abraham that God's about to destroy it? Because it also means Abraham is going to have a lot of grief because he's about to lose somebody in his family. And this is where I pick it up. Genesis 22. It says, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. So the, the two angels leave and God stays with Abraham. But Abraham stood still before the, the Lord. Now watch this. Then Abraham drew near and said, he asked a question. He said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away that place and not spare it for 50 righteous people who are in it? So what is Abraham doing? He's saying, God, aren't there any righteous people in this city? Like if there's 50 righteous people, will you at least not destroy the city? So he says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. 
Shall not the judge of all the, the earth do what is just? And the Lord says this, watch, he replies. If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. So what is he doing before the Lord? He's about to ask him something, so he's, he's kind of humbling himself. He says, suppose five of the 50 are righteous lacking. So he says, well, what if you only find 45? He says, will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45. So, so here's what we have going on in this long litany of texts. Abraham starts bargaining with the Lord. He starts negotiating with the Lord. Okay, if there's 50 people, um, will you not destroy the city? Sure, Abraham, I won't destroy the city if I can find 50 righteous people. Okay, well, what if there's only 45? Okay, I won't destroy the city if there's only 45. And you'll read in the next text, I'm not, I'm not going to read it for sake of time, but he talks God down all the way to 10 people. He says, okay, if you only find 20, how about that? God goes, okay, how, okay, if you only find 15, how about that? And then all of a sudden he stops at 10. It sounds like Abraham was with me at the airport in Kenya a few months ago. So what this means is when I was at the airport in Kenya, you know, when you, when you go to a foreign country, you always got to bring your wife and your kids back something. And, and in the airport, they had like these wooden bowls. I mean, like these wooden bowls. I could buy one at Dollar Tree for like a dollar, okay? And, and they've made these wooden bowls and they've painted all these African, you know, symbols on it. And uh, so I walk up to the thing, and it has this, like, $5 price tag on it. I'm like, okay, you know, I'll buy one of that. And I go and say, I'll take that wooden bowl. I'll take the necklaces. He goes, that bowl is $35. Say what? $35 for a carved tree. <laughs> $35. So what do we do? We go back and forth, and we start negotiating. If you've ever been to a foreign country, this is how you do business. You negotiate it. They say 35. You don't take 35. You say, I'll give you $5. And if you don't take the five, I'm walking away. Um, Because in Africa, as soon as they see your white skin, they think you have tons of money. I'm like, bro, I'm a poor white American. Okay. (laughs) Like, um, so we start negotiating back and forth. And finally, I get him back down to the price that it was originally listed for $5. Okay. I'll take $5. So this is what Abraham is doing with God. Ultimately, he's negotiating. God, don't destroy, don't destroy the city. If there's 10 left, if you can find 10 righteous people, don't destroy it. Now, why do I read this story? What, what does this have to do with vision? I find two intriguing questions in this story. Number one, why is Abraham even praying for this wicked city? Why does his heart even care for this wicked city? These people that have defiled God's purpose and plan. Um, it would actually make more sense if God came to, to Abraham and said, I'm going to destroy Sodom. He'd be like, great, go do it. Because Sodom had actually declared, declared war on Abraham. They kidnapped his nephew from him. They broke apart pieces of his family. It seems like Abraham would be like, heck yeah, let fire rain on them. Destroy the city. But Abraham, instead, he begins to plead with God, God, please spare the city. God, if you find 50 righteous people. God, if you find 45, if you find 35, if you, find, if you just find 10, just spare the city. But you see, if you read it in, in verse 18, you see that Abraham understood who God had made him to be to the people. Because there's a verse in verse 18 that actually says that God himself had blessed Abraham and anything that he asked for, God would give it to him. 
So he understood his role as a leader. He understood that he could stand before the Lord and say, God, spare this city, and God would probably do it. So he sees his role as this leader. He steps up to the plate, and he says, he could have requested, hey, God, just destroy the whole city. Just spare a lot. Just spare a lot. But he doesn't. He says, God, spare the whole city. He stands before God and he begs for mercy for this evil city. I I don't know if you get the gravity of this. This would be like the equivalent. The equivalent of me going to the American president and saying, spare your wrath from ISIS. I know that they have done horrible atrocities around the world. They've attacked the World Trade Center. They've done horrible atrocities here on American soil. But can you just mercy on them. Just, just have mercy on, I mean, every American here, when, when you hear the, the military or Trump say, we're going to bomb out, you're like, yes! Why? Because you feel this sort of like vengeance because of what they've done. Except Abraham steps into this place and he says, God, have mercy on them. That's what the equivalent of it would be. Why is Abraham doing that? Because he understands that he is a channel of God's blessings, so he begins to plead with the Lord to spare them. Now, I don't want you to miss something. Abraham understood one thing. The reason, this is the reason I believe that he begins to cry out for mercy for this city, is he understands one thing. Yes, they have done, Sodom has done horrible atrocities to people. They have committed terrible crimes. They're evil, wicked people. But Abraham understands one thing. I have done horrible things against God as well. I've committed horrible, I mean, if you, if you read the whole story of Abraham, you'll see. He was a good leader, but he was not a perfect one. He, did, he had his share of controversies. You see, Abraham, in this moment, begins to beg and cry out for mercy for a city that doesn't deserve it because he realized that God gave it to him even when he didn't deserve it. Even when he found himself at a place not deserving the blessings that God had bestowed on him. He understood that him as a person, man, I've failed, I've blown it, I've made promises to God and I haven't kept them. So the reason that I cry out and beg for God to save this city is because I have been given grace. See, now it kind of makes sense why Abraham cries out for mercy. Well, I'll back up. It actually doesn't make sense. Unless you have received the grace of God, that doesn't make any sense. Because here's the truth. It's, it's so easy um, to beg God for grace and mercy for yourself. God, when, when you've screwed up, you say, oh God, please save me. God, spare me of the consequences. Please have grace on me. Forgive me. But when somebody else sins against you, you're like, God, just burn them. <laughs> just kill them, right? But when you have been the recipient of a grace that has been so big, when you understand that God has forgiven you of some of the most horrible things, you can look at other people and say, I forgive you too. Because you realize that God reached down when you didn't deserve it, and he chose to forgive you. See, grace is easier to give to others when you understand that God gave it to you when you didn't deserve it yourself. And this is why Abraham begins to cry out for this city. The second thing that I see in the story is, number two, why did Abraham stop negotiating at 10? I mean, he got God down from 50 to 10. Why didn't he keep going? Why didn't he, like, why didn't he get God down to one? Any good negotiator knows that when you're on a roll, you keep going, right? Like if you're talking somebody down, you don't stop. 
You get them as low as you possibly can. It would be the equivalent of your friend selling his two-year-old Mercedes that you know is worth $50,000. And you walk up to him and you say, hey, man, um, it's a nice car. Would you take $10,000? He's like, yeah, sure, why not? Are you serious? Yeah, sure, I'll take $10,000. Now, do you stop at ten? Like, if he's feeling a little friendly in that moment, you're like, no. Would you take five? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take five. Do you stop at five? No, you're a good negotiator. You're working this guy down. It's a $50,000 vehicle, and he's saying he'll take 5000 By the end, you're just like, listen, man, you just pay me to take the car off your hands, <laughs> right? Because any good negotiator knows you talk them down as low as you can. Why did Abraham stop at 10? Well, he stopped at 10 because he even realized that there was not one righteous person in the city he began to realize why God was going to destroy the city. He began to realize, wait, hold on, there's not even one. God can't even find one righteous person. God ends up destroying the city, and as a favor to, to Abraham, he spares Lot and his family. His wife ends up dying. He says, don't look back on the atrocities that God's about to do to the city. It says his wife turns around, and she turns into a pillar of salt in that moment, which is crazy when you think about it. So this story leaves a question that only the New Testament can answer. Are there any righteous people that can plead for mercy on behalf of the wicked? Are there any people, let me put it this way. Does your heart ache for this city? Because here's what, when we live in a small town, here's what I hear all the time, and it fires me up. I'm just be honest with you, it makes me angry. You live in a small town, and you have people all the time. You see this on Facebook all the time, and man, the city's just not what it used to be. And you got thugs, and you got crime, and you got this, and you got this, and you got people stealing this, and you got people doing that, and just it's not what it used to be. What is the church going to do about it? What are, what are we going to do about the things that we hate about this city? And we can look at it, because I don't know if you know this, but we're Sodom in this, in this story. We are. And, and God is looking down upon his church and he's saying, is there one righteous person in this community, in this church that can grab a hold of a burden and a heart for this city to go, God, I'm pleading on this city's behalf that you would come in, that you would start revival here, that you would start restoration, that ultimately God's people, the church would begin to rise up and would pe- see people that are far from you, that are lost, that would come to know Jesus. At the end of the day, that's what's going on. You see, 750 years before Jesus is born, the prophet Isaiah foretold the horrors that Jesus would endure on the cross. In Isaiah 53, 11, listen to this. It says, God will see the suffering of his soul and be satisfied. He's talking about Jesus, his one and only son. Jesus' righteousness was so great and his sacrifice satisfied God's wrath for us. So what does this mean? This means that instead of God raining down fire from heaven and destroying cities when they're evil and wicked, now we have the opportunity to say, God, please forgive me, and he forgives us. Now, now there is a bridge, there is a way to get to God. Like God poured out all of his anger and all of his wrath towards humanity on his son when he was murdered and killed on the cross. So this means that now today that you and I have access to that grace and that mercy. That grace and mercy that Jesus now affords to all of us. Instead of God destroying us now, there is a cross. There's a place that we can run to to receive forgiveness, to receive grace. Now here's what here's the kind of the meat of what I want to get to. 
you and I have been placed in a similar situation as Abraham today. And let me explain. And this applies to us personally, and this applies to us as a church. Number one, each of us are placed into a community to pray and sacrifice on its behalf. Each of us are divinely chosen by God to live in the neighborhood that you live in. Each of us are divinely chosen by God to work at the job that you work in. We're all divinely chosen by God to come to this church, to be surrounded by the people that God places us around. See, God placed you to into a family and into a community so that you could be like Abraham, that you would pray blessings upon them. God put you in an environment ultimately that, so that you could be light in the darkness. See, God has intentionally placed you on purpose even to be a part of this church so that God could do something inside of us so that we can begin to see our communities transformed. See, in Acts 17, 26, it even says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Watch this. Having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling places. So what, what is he saying? That God, like God even chose that you would be born in Crowley. Or God chose that you would move to Crowley or, or Rain or Gaydon, wherever you live at in Acadia Parish. God divinely chose and he picked you to be a part of what you're a part of. See, my neighbors thought that we just moved to the neighborhood three years ago to start a church. But little did they know that my wife and I, hey, we want to see our neighbors come to know Jesus, right? So we're not just in that neighborhood to like exist. At the end of the day, we're, we're there to begin to reach people. And since we've lived there, we've actually seen two of our neighbors come to church. We've seen people get baptized that live in our neighborhood. I'm not saying everything's always been perfect and we've done everything right. But I know that God put us in that neighborhood on purpose. And the truth is he did the same for you. Do you see your neighborhood like that? Are you praying for your neighbors even though they always park in your parking spot? True story. <laughs> is she here? No, she's not here today. All right. Um, but I want to talk to you, OSC Crowley, because this is a defining moment. God brought you to this church for a reason so that you can make an impact on someone else's life. This is your destiny to extend the grace that God has given to you to someone else. The very fact that God put this church in Acadia Parish, it shows how much he loves this area. It shows just how much he loves this area to bring another life-giving church that can serve this community, love this community. And because he has given us so much grace and so much mercy, we owe this city our sacrifice, our love and our mercy because what Jesus has done for us. I, I don't really think that we realize this as a church, how blessed we really are. When 90% of churches are under 65 you have over a thousand churches closing a month. People are just struggling to try to get people in the doors, and we're looking at ways to try to get people out of certain buildings because we're growing. 
because God is adding people and new people are coming and new faces are coming. and People are getting baptized and saved and joining life groups and being a part of the dream team. Like we don't realize how blessed we are as a church. And because we're so blessed, that means that we are debtors to this city. And let me explain. In Romans 1.14, Paul called himself a debtor to those who did not know Jesus. So, so what does that mean? We, we owe people something now? Well, there's two different ways to look at debt. Um, the first way is you went to the bank, you borrowed some money that was not yours, right? You borrowed some money and now you got a monthly payment on it. This is how most of us buy our homes. And so you get a mortgage or whatever, and now you're in what? You're in debt to that bank until that money is paid back, right? That's the kind of debt that we know. But the kind of debt that Paul is talking about is this kind of debt. Let's just say, um, okay, let's, let's do it this way. Let's just say you were one of the people in Houston that lost everything. Your home, your li- now your livelihood, because you probably can't even get to your job. I mean, you lose everything. And let's just say you're having just this horrible day and you have all of your stuff piled up at the street that you've cleared out of your house. You've spent every dime that you have trying to pour money back into the house. You've got nothing left. And this man comes along on your street as you're sitting outside your porch feeling sorry for yourself and how, how am I going to get through this? And this man comes across and he says, hey, um, do you need some help? Yeah, absolutely, I, I need help. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you enough money to last you 10 lifetimes. You can rebuild your house. You, you, can, li- you, can, you can retire. You can, I'm going to give you enough money to last 10 lifetimes. Now, what do, you, what do you do? How do you respond in that moment? Like, wait, wait. Okay, so do I need to pay you back? Or am I, am I taking out a loan from you? He says, no, no, it's yours. The only requirement that I have is, is this. When you see somebody else struggling, you just do the same thing that I did for you. That's all I want you to do. That's what Paul's, that's what Paul's talking about as a debtor. And that's what, I, what I'm talking about as we owe this city because hundred, many of you in this church have gotten saved here in this church. And all I'm asking today is that the same grace that God has given to you, that he saved you, not because you were like awesome. Some people just think that, well, I just, man, God just chose me to save me because, you know, I was a good person. I didn't really do anything that bad. And he just, I was just great and God saved me. The truth is God saved you at the end of the day, not because you were special, not because you, you didn't have a whole lot of sin in your life. He saved you because he just gave you grace and mercy. Ultimately, he just plucked you from where you were at and said, hey, today you're going to serve me. I'm going to extend grace. And what God is calling us to do as a church is the same grace, the same mercy that has been given to you that you would return that to other people. This is the kind of debt that Paul's talking about. See, Paul knew that for no reason at all, God had chosen him to advance the gospel. Paul wasn't more worthy than other sinners. He didn't have more potential. He wasn't just given some kind of access that nobody else had. At the end of the day, he realized that, man, God just chose me, and he just blessed me with the grace to to preach the gospel. And when he realized that he was given that grace, he goes, man, I owe it to the people. I, I owe my life to these people to begin to return everything that God has given me. See, as a church today, we're the same people. We have been given something special. Our church is growing while so many others are struggling. And it's not because we're cooler. It's not because we have better music. It's not because we're more special than others. It's not because you have a really good-looking pastor. I mean, that could be part of it. I'm just kidding. Um, 
But God didn't save you because there was something special about you. God didn't choose to bless this church because there's something special about it. He just said, I'm giving you grace. I'm giving you grace. I'm going to just trust these broken idiots that don't know what they're doing. And we're just going to build the church with these guys, this ragtag group of people. And we're just going to build a church and I'm just going to give you grace. He didn't give us grace because we had certain kind of potential. He didn't give us grace because our sin wasn't as bad as somebody else's. Truth is, we were Sodom in the story. And there was people that went before us and just prayed, like, God, would you just send mercy to Crowley? Would you send people that would just love this city, serve this city, build this city, change this city? See, because God answered his prayer for us, we owe our efforts and our generosity to everybody else. See, the truth is your life looks different when you're a debtor. It looks different when you're a debtor. See, if you owe $100,000 to a credit card company and you somehow get $10,000 extra dollars, like you don't have the freedom to just say, yes, let's go buy a new car. Like you owe it to the credit card company. Your freedom is gone, right? And the truth is, as Christians, we should look at it the same way. God has given me something that is so great, I owe parts of my life back to people that do not know him. God has given me a grace that he didn't have to. He, he bestowed mercy upon me that he didn't have to. He gave me something that many other people don't have, and it is my job, it is my debt to pay it back. See, we have an obligation to give everything we have to this city because God has given us so much. And so some of you may ask the question today, because I know where it's going. Well, pastor, how much do I have to give? How much do I have to give? How much money do I have to give? How much of my time do I have to give? Like, how much of a debtor am I? And, I? and I would say this, if you're asking the question, how much do I have to give? You're asking the wrong question. The question is this, why am I not giving and why? <laughs> why am I not giving and why? Because if you truly have been saved by the grace of God, you will understand God gave something to you, so you owe something back. Because he gave us everything. See, the second point that I want to make is we can pray and give expectantly because of the worthy sacrifice of Jesus. So what this means in Psalms 2.8, it says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance at the end of the earth for your possessions. I don't know if you realize the potential that God has placed in your hands today. The potential that we have in our hands as Christians as a church, I mean, you see it all happening all over Houston right now. I'll tell you this. If the church did not rise up in Houston, they could not continue the relief efforts that they're doing. They just couldn't. There's thousands of churches right now, like, operating as relief centers. Sheltering people, feeding people. It's a church being the church. And they do this, why? Because they realize, man, God's blessed us. He's given us something great, and so we owe it back to the people. See, I think one of the most tragic things today is we have a lot of Christians that sit around, they talk about the future, and they're discouraged. They say things like, oh, you know, Pastor, we've, we've lost the culture. We've lost the culture. It's just we're not a Christian nation anymore. We're, we're losing who we used to be and our foundations. And, and they talk like they're so discouraged. They talked like Christianity is over, like, like somehow Jesus just, you know, just forgot about America and he's just kind of out. The truth is, Jesus didn't die so we could hang around talking about sad stories and waiting on the rapture to happen. 
Jesus died and gave us a grace and a mercy that was so great that so we could go boldly to the city, to the nations, and tell people about Jesus. Because at the end of the day, that's why we're here. Jesus did not die so we could sit around. He did not die at the end of the day so we could just fill churches and be comfortable. He said, listen, I sacrificed, and he wants us to sacrifice something. So today... We need to ask big, and we need to dream big for this church. I think one of the most common misconceptions that happens within a smaller community is that you're just going to be a smaller church. That's all it's ever going to be. We're going to operate like this. We're going to do this. It's never going to get beyond this. When we sit around and we dream about this church, you know what? We, 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 we genuinely believe this church will be 1,000 people one day. And it's not, it's not just a dream. It's not just a vision. We know that we're going to see it happen. Because we talk that way. We, we pray that way. We believe that way. We even structure ourselves to, to grow to be that way. Man, could you imagine if we had 1,000 people at this church? That'd be 10% of this city. The kind of impact that we could have. And listen, it's not about getting numbers in here. At the end of the day, it's about seeing lost people come to know Jesus. And it's about the church rising up and being the church. See, what you decide to do today has the ability to change someone else's eternity. Who is that one person, that one family member, that one neighbor, that one friend, that if you just started praying for them, just like Abraham prayed for that city, that God would spare them, that God would have mercy on them? Who is that one person that may come to know Jesus by simply you just believing God for them? I love in the scriptures in Psalms 2.8, it says, ask of me and I'll give you the nations. In Matthew 21, 22, it says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. As long as you ask it out of selfish ambition. So if you're asking like, God, I want to see my neighbor come to know Jesus. God, I want to see this church grow and I want to see myself be a part of the active part of being a part of that. I want to see my family member come to know Jesus. Who, let me ask you, who's that one person if you were to look down on your friends or family and say, there's no way they'll ever come to know Jesus. No way. They are just way too far off. There is no way, even if God just plucked them and picked them out of where they're at, there's no way they would serve Jesus. Who's that person? Start praying for them. So we've got to learn to dream big. We've got to learn to buy into big vision. What you decide to do today can be a defining moment for somebody else. See, because, of Ab- because Abraham followed, you're here today. Like we were the children of Israel, wandering around in the desert with no home, with no place. But God says, hold on, I've prepared a land for you. I've prepared a place for you. Because Abraham followed the Lord, you sit here today. Who will point to you and say, because that person followed Jesus, I stand before a relationship with Jesus today? Who will that person be? See, because Abraham trusted God, you're here. Who will point to you and say, because you Because you trusted God, I stand here today. Because Abraham prioritized God, surrendered, believed God for big things, we stand here today. Who will stand next to you one day in heaven, in eternity, and say, because of this person, I know Jesus today. Because of this person, I know Jesus today. See, God has divinely placed us where we're at. Not to just be, listen, this this drives me nuts as a Christian. Because we have bought, especially in America, we have bought into this ideal that American Christianity is just morality. It's just morality. Just be a good person and respect people. That's not Christianity. 
That's called morality. <laughs> it's called being a good person. At the end of the day, God's called us to rise up and be Christians. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you just, okay, I'm not going to curse around my neighbor. <laughs> See, I say this all the time, but Christians often major, they, they major on the minors and they minor on the majors. Meaning this, man, you can complain all day about some kind of post that somebody, you know, posted on Facebook and your neighbor being loud and somebody cursing in front of you or listening to a song that you don't agree with. And you can complain all day, but the truth is you don't give a hoot about your neighbor, the, the single mom that's next to you that's struggling to make ends meet. You don't care about the person that's dying and going to hell. We, we, we get all these things mixed up. We focus all of our efforts on being so, I don't know, on people that we miss out the meat of Christianity. And Jesus is calling us to be actively engaging that, a part of that. So this leads me today, as a church, I'm going to ask of you four big things today. As a church, four big things. I believe if we decide to do these things today, that this will be a defining moment for us. This will be a defining moment for us. See, we're moving into a time where, man, we, we're trusting God right now for buildings. I'll be honest with you about where we're at with all that kind of stuff, where, where our kids are at. We've got to find a new building soon. We've got about maybe a month and a half, if that, to find a building for our kids. Um, so we don't know where that's coming from yet. So we're trusting, we're believing, we're praying in God for that. Um, eventually, we're looking for a building to house our people. We're looking for space. Uh, as I told you um, last week, um, we've literally had almost four times of like going through to being at a different place, and it just hasn't worked out. Um, and that's why I preached the message that I did last week. That it's just like sometimes like circling around the city. If it didn't touch anybody, it touched me because it was for me. God was like speaking to me about that. Just keep walking, Zach. Just keep praying. Just keep trusting God. Just keep doing what you've always been doing. So we find ourselves in these defining moments. And here's the truth. If we're going to move forward as a church to be a church that's going to make an impact here on this city, we've got to do these four things. The first one is this. If you don't know Jesus today, surrender your life to him today. If you don't know Jesus, I want to invite you towards the end of the service. Man, you have an opportunity to give your life to him today. Maybe you're in here today and you've been sitting on the fence for, for years, for months. Because you know when you completely surrender, it, I mean, it, it's going to cost you something. It's a different lifestyle all of a sudden. It's a change. And I, I want to call you into that. I promise you this. Walking with Jesus and God's people will be the greatest journey that you have ever walked down in your life. And that joy and that hope and peace that you've been searching for, you'll finally find it. And it's only going to be found in a relationship with Jesus. So if you have not surrendered and submitted your life to Jesus, I want to call you to do that today. Don't wait. Don't put it off. I mean, James literally says our life is like a vapor. We're here and we're gone tomorrow. And I think that sometimes we, we, a lot of humans have this illusion of time. I have plenty of time left. The truth is you don't know how much time you have left. We don't know. I mean, all of us immediately just assume, man, I'm going to grow old and I'll die of old age one day. But the truth is, man, there's tragedies that happen every single day. Every single day. We don't know how much time we have left. We don't know if we have tomorrow. So I, I want you to make a decision today. If you're sitting on the fence, like, I mean, I need to, maybe you need to recommit your life to God or maybe you need to submit your life to God altogether. So that's the first thing. If you're sitting in this room today and you don't know Jesus, I want you to surrender your life to Jesus today. The second thing, if you've been a part of this church for a while and you don't serve on a team, I want to encourage you to sign up for a team. 
Because here's that we call it the dream team. And you probably hear that wordage. You probably hear it all the time. What the heck is the dream team? Uh, the truth is the dream team is what makes this church function. Um, we could not have church without the incredible volunteers that serve this church and this city so effortlessly and sacrificially. Many of them give many, 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 many hours to serve. And listen, maybe that's not your calling, but maybe it's simple. Once a month on a Sunday, whatever it may be. I was telling our leaders this the other day. I think sometimes people don't see the need to serve in our church because the truth is we, we try our best to pull off the best service that we can. So if you see people greeting at the doors and you see people, you know, taking care of your kids and you see people behind a booth or on a stage, you're like, man, they got it taken care of. Why do they need me? The, the truth is, it's not just for us, for you jumping on a team. The truth is, it's for you. Because the moment that you jump on a team and you begin to rub elbows with other people and you begin to do life with other people and you begin to serve along other people, you begin to realize a completely different piece of the pie of the church that you've been missing all along. Because the Bible says iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. The truth is God is calling some of us in this church, or I'd say all of us in this church, to no longer just be people that sit in seats, but ultimately people that are actively a part of God's vision saying, okay, I want to attach myself to something that is greater than me. So number one, if you don't know Jesus, commit your life to Jesus today. Number two, if you're not serving somewhere, I want to encourage you to do that. Actually, as a matter of fact, at the end of the service today, we'll give you an opportunity to do just that. You'll walk out of these doors and there'll be a table. You can sign up for a team. You can talk to a leader. You can, you can visit with them. Um, the third thing, if this is your church family, if this is your home, I want to call you to give to this house to give to this house. There's, I've said this before, and I'm just being transparent with you. God has blessed us. He's been so gracious to us. He's been so merciful to us. We're so, we're honestly, we're just privileged to see the resources that God has flooded our way. But do you know that we operate off of 8% of people that give here? With over 250 people, only 8% of them give on a regular basis. And that's the truth. I'm just being transparent with you. I'm just being honest with you. Imagine if we could increase that, what we could do in this city. Imagine what we could do if every single person played their part in giving. See, when, when you see Houston, when you see the flood, what do you do? You feel the need, right? So people give to that. It's, that's, there's no problem with that. The truth is the church is the same thing. We exist so that lost people can come to know Jesus. And the truth is, ministry does not happen without people who aren't 100% involved. Like, we've got to be committed to this. My wife and I, we, we give every single week, not because, like, we have to. We give because we want to, because at the end of the day, we feel like we're Sodom in the story. And that God so graciously gave us what we have. That he has lavished his grace and mercy upon us, even when we didn't deserve it. And so that's why we give. We, we give back because we serve a God that has been so gracious to us. And I want to invite you to do that today. That today that you would begin to take that, that, that step of faith to say, God, I'm going to trust you with my finances. I'm going to give it back to you. I'll, I'll tell you this. If you find yourself dry financially, if you find yourself struggling financially, it's probably because you're not being generous. Here's the truth. Here's the question that you have to ask yourself. If you're begging God for more money right now, God, I don't know how we're going to make it. Could God trust you if he gave you more money? If he gave you more money where you're like, flat screen, <laughs> right? If God gave you more money 
could he say, man, I'm going to give you this, and I'm going to trust you that you're going to steward it, that you're going to do something good with it, that you're going to give it away to people. And I'm not, listen, I'm not saying that God, ha- God's given us resources to enjoy life, to have fun in life, to enjoy the, the finer things of life. I love a good meal every now and then, going to a nice restaurant, and I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying this, that you would pray and that you begin to ask God, how can I sacrificially be a part of this? Because listen, you cannot be a Christian and not be generous. You can't. You cannot be a Christian and be stingy. Because we serve a God who gave everything for us, who was so generous that not only did he give everything that he had, but he gave his life for us. You cannot be a Christian and not be generous. You have to. At the end of the day, this is what God is calling us to do. And listen, I understand when we talk about this stuff, when you hear pastors talk about this stuff, you're like, oh, there it goes. Here's another guy talking about money. Here's another. Ch-. Listen, if, if you have that view of me, I can't change that. I can tell you this with all complete honesty, that everything that comes in here, that it is dealt with the utmost integrity. We try to be as open as we can with our finances. We try to let people know if they have questions, we answer them. Like, there's nothing going on behind closed doors. It's the reason that we've structured the church that we have. I have a pastor. My pastor has a pastor. We have shepherds that overlook, that look at our finances. Where none of us can go out and just blow money just for the sake of it. It has to be approved. Like, we do everything with the utmost integrity. I'm not saying that our, we're sinful men. We struggle just like anybody else. We're not perfect. But there are boundaries in place so that that can be dealt with with the utmost integrity. And the truth is, I'm just being honest with you, I, I stand up here boldly and ask you guys to be a part of something big because I know what this can be as soon as everybody dives in. I, I, I see the vision like 10 years down the road of where God is taking us and a church that is transforming the landscape and it's just not going to happen until people learn to be generous. The fourth thing that I want to ask you to do is I want you to get in a life group if you're not in one yet. Find a life group. Get in one. Listen. You cannot do everything that God is calling you to do without people. It's just impossible. You can't serve other people. You can't love other people. You can't even function properly as a Christian without other people coming alongside of you. It's very easy to get in the life group. Download our app. Go to oscconnect.com. You can see the groups that are available. You can contact the leader. If you have any questions about how to join one, shoot us a message on Facebook, and we'll direct you. But if everyone can do these four things, it will truly be a defining moment for this church. Over the next two weeks, we'll talk about some things in detail. So I know I've alluded to them, some of the buildings and some of that kind of stuff. But before we can ever even talk about these details, we've got to make sure that people are at a place where they say, okay, I'm 100% in. And I want to challenge you to do those four things today. See, regardless of what you do today, my prayer is that every person in this room will give of themselves sacrificially in some kind of way, shape, or form. And God's work is done in response to audacious requests. That's why I'm asking you something that is audacious, that is big. For some of you, you're like, whoa, I don't know if I can do all those things. I'm asking big because God does big things when we ask of big things. I'm in Joshua 10, they're fighting a war, and he says, hey God, can you hold the sun for a little bit? (laughs) Just don't, don't, don't set it. And God says, sure. I'll hold the sun. So listen, I I ask you to do these things today. Is it a big ask for some of you? Absolutely, 100% it is. But a God who stops the sun is a God who is generous enough for you to be able to say, you know what, I can trust God with my finances. I can trust God with my time. I can trust God and sacrificially give. I can do that because I serve a big God.
Every single time my wife and I choose to be generous, God has always blessed us. And it's the principle of sowing and reaping. That's all it is. It's the principle of sowing and reaping. If you sow seed into soil that is ripe and rich and ready to grow, it will prosper and grow. It will prosper and grow. 